Welcome into the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. Today is a Wednesday, which means we're taking Oregon football fans, Oregon basketball fans, just anyone that likes Oregon sports, I guess, in general, your best questions. Uh, you dictate the show. You drive the ship. Uh, you submitted, I think, eight questions we've selected. Uh, Eric has. Uh, we've got the best of the best. Talking lots of, I think, Pac-12 football, some college football recruiting for Oregon, uh, Pac-12 championship game, Oregon versus Utah. Maybe a couple basketball questions have snuck their way in. We'll see what Eric has got. So, uh, Eric, let's let's kick things off. First question from at Clear Duck. What is the best strategy for defeating Utah? Grounded pound to control the clock, air attack to test the corners like USC did, or a combination of both. Uh, well, the, the I guess to start, there's no easy answer because if you look at this Utah defense, it's really good. You can, I'm going to say you can argue it's probably the best in the country. Uh, I mean, just in terms of the the way they defend both the run, where they're ranked first in the country, they've I think only Georgia's allowed um, fewer rushing touchdowns than than Utah this year. And Utah, obviously, I mean, I was looking through the numbers yesterday. It's crazy. Uh, one game all season where the opposing uh, or the opposing team, not just opposing star running back, but opposing team has run for more than 100 yards. Yeah. Um, like five straight games under 60. Uh, a team like USC who ran for like about a hundred yards against Oregon ran for like 20. Uh, they're, they're very, very, very good against the run, but at the same time, they're pretty darn good against the pass too. I know they give up a little more yardage there, but um, you kind of look, I think PF PFF did it's all conference first team this week. for <laughs> It's all and, Utah. And, yeah. The, the, the defense, I think three of the defensive backfield was Utah players. So you can't say that they don't have good players back there either. So uh, there's no easy solution. It's probably going to have to be a combination of both. And look, I think I wrote a story about it on Monday. I think we talked about it on the podcast. I do think Justin Herbert has to be significantly better. He has to be at his best for Oregon to win. But I also think like it's going to be really, really hard if they can't at least establish something on first down running the football. And it'll be interesting to see how you know how long they stick with the run game. I mean, because it could be a thing where if it's just not working. Uh, Marcus Oreo needs to be prepared to just kind of, all right, I guess we're not going to be able to have much success running the ball in these situations. Uh, we're going to have to try to change it up. I don't think this is a game where you can be, I guess, quote-unquote stubborn because Utah is just so, so devastatingly good defensively uh, that it makes it tough. What, what do you think, Matt? I mean, Oregon had 405 yards against Utah last season in 2018, mm-hmm. and that was a game in which the first half um, – Jake Hansen did not play because he was suspended, if you remember, the previous week because of a personal foul penalty, which is just mind-boggling in of itself. Uh, Oregon did run for 117 yards on on that team. They had a 6.14 average, which was the third most uh, against Utah. You go back to 2017, uh, Oregon played the Utes, and, and they won that game, and they had 416 yards. And that was a game in which... They ran for 347 yards, and they could they could not throw because Herbert was hurt. Braxton Burmeister was in. Now, granted, Oregon also had Royce Freeman uh, at running back, and Kanab and Wah also at running back uh, in that game. Um, so the last two years, Oregon and you know this Oregon team has essentially been able to move the football in two different ways with two entirely different teams against this vaunted defense and they are they are vaunted now granted last season's game was a little bit of a too little too late type of a scenario um it took took them a half almost three quarters to get going um 
but they've I, I think Oregon can can fall back and say, hey, offensively, we have guys that have played against this team that have want that have that have moved the ball against Utah. Um, so I, I think there's some confidence there. Uh, but it, it's going to be hard. It's going to be their toughest test of the season, no doubt about it, because Utah, they they can defend the pass. They can defend the run. They've had one game this year where an opponent has ran for over 100 yards. That was Arizona State with 111, uh, and then they only threw for 25 in that game. Uh, Incredible. It's, which is in, which is mind-boggling. I mean, the, the season yeah. high for most total yards in a football game against this Utah defense is 381, and that came – all the way back on the 20th of September at Southern California, a game in which USC won that one 30-23, and they did it with Matt Fink at quarterback because if you remember, Keaton Slovis got knocked out on the first drive. So USC did it with their third-string quarterback the fourth week of the regular season, um, and they did it through the air, 368 passing. I, you and I, we've talked about it on the podcast this week already, and we've talked about it a couple times. We watched that game, and we were just blown away at just how – simplistic USC's offense was of just run down the field and, and make plays. Now, I guess the question becomes, can Oregon replicate that? Does Oregon have the personnel to replicate what USC did? Uh, I I think USC's receivers, their top three, without a doubt, are better than anyone Oregon has at the re- at the receiver position available for this football game, and, and regardless of available or not. Um, so I think that factors into it, but I think also Oregon has a better run game than USC does. Um, they certainly have my mind, a better quarterback and it, it, it boils down to just can Oregon's offensive line, I think create a push and can Justin Herbert have a Justin Herbert game? Because if, if he doesn't, Oregon has no chance, uh, in, in this football game, but if he does and Herbert does come out and play well, um, I don't think it really matters what Utah does. If Herbert's playing at his best and the offensive line is protecting him or creating some kind of push, the Ducks are going to have a chance. I'm not going to say they're going to win, but if Herbert's playing an A-level game, Oregon's going to have a chance. You know, and I keep looking at that USC game and trying to figure out if that's just the outlier of this season because, I mean, the next week they played Washington State and shut the Cougar offense down really, really well. Um, and that's a that's an air attack that Oregon struggled with. And then you look at that Arizona State game, Jaden Daniels and those receivers totally torched Oregon secondary. And yet, like you just said, I mean, they had like 20 yards received, had like 20 yards passing in that game. So um, there aren't any easy answers. Uh, it, I, I think it, I think you're I think to me, the big thing is Justin Herbert has to perform well. And, and I, I think the rest of it, you know, is kind of dependent on how he plays. And the passing attack is going to be, I think, what has to kind of separate Oregon in this game. Cause I just don't know if I see enough enough opportunity running the football uh, to, to really do enough damage against Utah. Second question from at hero five, four, one YT. What is Oregon going to do to contain Zach Moss and Tyler Huntley, arguably the most talented backfield duo they've faced up to this point? Uh, good question. You know, and, and he's right in terms of like Zach Moss is the conference's leading rusher. Uh, and he's, kind of distanced himself, especially over the last half of the season in terms of, of leading the conference in rushing yards. It wasn't that long ago that like Selvin Ahmad from Washington was leading the you know league in rushing, but Moss has just consistently ran over, I think, about 100 yards every game um, over the last five or six. So he is a difficult, difficult player to stop. And then Huntley is undoubtedly the most uh, efficient 
passer in terms of he completes over 75% of his passes. He's thrown two picks. He leads the conference in quarterback rating. He's near the top of that stat nationally. Um, they're just really good. And I think the thing with them is they, they minimize and limit their mistakes. They don't turn it over very often. Um, they play mistake or, you know, yeah, mistake, you know, free football. Uh, former high school teammates out of Florida area are, are kind of two guys that have really helped take Utah to the next level offensively because that was, it's always been a, a thing where like they've always had the guys on the line of scrimmage. They just haven't right. had the athletes at quarterback and running back and wide receiver. And they still kind of lack some of that at wideout, but um, they're getting better. And these two guys are clear. And, and I think for me, I think it all starts with Zach Moss. If, if Oregon can find a way to, to limit him or slow him down or, um, or, or just kind of minimize what he's able to do, especially on early downs, I think that sets them up because if you can make this a thing where it's Huntley having to throw the football on third and seven or third and eight, or th- maybe there's a, a tackle behind the line of scrimmage or a, fa- or a false start penalty and it's third and 13 or something like that, that's how you beat Utah. If, if this is, if this becomes it's third and threes and third and fours, you know, over and over again, that that's going to be very difficult for this Oregon defense. So I think it all starts on what you can do on, on first and second. And, and to me, that, that's where Zach Moss factors into it because he is so big and strong that even if the defense plays the play properly, he's going to fall forward for a couple of yards every time. Yeah, that that's going to be critical is the success of Oregon defensively on first down because, <clears throat> excuse me, if, if, if you can get Utah into a second and eight, second and nine, second and 10, second and 11 or better situation, now all of a sudden the Utes aren't, they are not going to be two dimensional. They're going to have to throw the football. And I think, I think everyone would, would say this, even Utah would probably say this if you gave them truth serum that everything for them starts up front with being able to run the football and putting Huntley into positions where he doesn't have to every single drive, every single possession, every single series have to go out and current and create first downs through the air on, on third and longs or second and longs. Um, or, or Utah's Utah's always been a ground and pound team with Kyle Whittingham as the head coach. It's always been if you can stop the run, you have a chance at beating this team. But if you can't, and they get four yards, they get five yards, they get six or seven yards on on first down on on a carry, then all of a sudden that's where the play action happens. That's where they can take shots. That's where they can be a little bit more aggressive because they know they've got two downs to get two or three four yards. And Zach Moss is the type of running back that that's almost automatic for him. So I think first down defense is going to be critical for Oregon. Can they put the Utes in some kind of a second or third and long and position themselves where they can be, they can be the aggressor and Utah has to kind of react to what Oregon does. Kyle Whittingham straight up said on Monday's teleconference with, with Pac-12 Media, our number one objective offensively is to run the football with a physicality and a violence that takes a toll on the opponent. So, I mean, that right there states it pretty clearly. And it's kind of funny. Look at that. That's a quote that you feel like could be lifted directly from Mario Cristobal. And I think that's one of the things that you kind of pick up on just listening to the two coaches and kind of looking closer at the numbers of these programs, I don't want to say are mirrors of each other, but there is some commonality in terms of they both want to prioritize that that game at the line of scrimmage, and they both want to win there. And it's I think I really do think the more and more you look at this, I know Justin Herbert's going to be critical as well, but this game is probably going to be decided by who's better up front on both offense and on defense. And for Oregon, that's a challenge I think that they're excited to take. But Utah is really, really good on both sides there too. Third Wouldn't question from oh, go ahead. 
wasn't isn't that like isn't this kind of the scenario you want to see for like a, just a program building game for Mario Cristobal as head coach? Like we've talked a lot about how he's wanted and he's preached physicality. He wants to you know control the line of scrimmage, and he said that you know to to win games and to compete for championships, you've got to be able to win the line of scrimmage on both sides of the football. And I I mean, Auburn was that type of a game, but I think this is even more so of a, a good barometer of how close Oregon is to being the most physical team in football in the Pac-12 on both sides of the ball. Because I think right now that that trade, even before the season started, probably went to Utah. Like from a, from a brand name perspective, year in, year out, you're always going to say Utah first. But uh, Oregon's going to have an opportunity to, to show us where they're at going in, into that this conference championship game. A hundred percent agreement. And, and I think that's what makes this one such a fun one. I think, especially if, if that's the, if you're like a fan of that kind of football, I think you're going to, you're going to be pleased with what you see on Friday. Number three from at David Strayan, regardless of pactual championship in the bowl game, where should, or where does the staff focus on improving before next season? I think that's an interesting question. Um, you know, and obviously Every offseason, that's what the focal point will be for a Mario Cristobal staff. And, you know, he's always trying to find ways to make his program better. Um, I, I would think offensively, there's going to have to be some conversations. You know, Justin Herbert obviously won't be with the program anymore. They're going to be a new quarterback. In terms of finding ways to maximize whatever quarterback, whatever whoever that is and whatever his skill set is, I, I think to me, you take a long, hard look at the pistol and decide if that's something you think is continuing to be, you know, a viable option um, for as good as Oregon is up front this season. And I think, you know, you, you saw it in terms of, you know, we talked about the power pro football focus defensive uh, first team all conference and how that was so much Utah. The, the offensive side was very much Oregon and you saw a lot of the offensive line on there, but as good as those guys have been, the run game to me has never quite been what, I was hoping or expecting to be. So I would say you have to take a long look at, is that something you want to pursue and continue, or do you want to kind of mix it up? Um, and then I'm sure there's going to be some staff decisions they have to make. We just saw Arizona state who I know it's not an Oregon season where you won 10 games, but they went seven and five this season and they kind of went out and did a full overhaul of their offensive coaching staff. So I don't expect Oregon to be that I don't know, dramatic, I guess, may take that drastic of a measure, but like, I wouldn't be shocked if there's some, some changes made to the staff too. What about you, Matt? You know, I, I think you have to look at the offense, and I, I don't know if it necessarily means coaching changes. Um, right. I, I think that's what the question was hinting at, of are guys going to get replaced? But I think you have to figure out why was there some difficulty in situations of getting guys schemed open? Because I, I think you watch some games again you know around the conference or you watch college football around the, the league or the, the the country and i'll just use oregon state for an example you you saw the a, a beaver team that was inferior in talent did not have the depth um, offensively and yet they found ways to well granted there was only a 384 yard performance you know, they found ways to scheme guys open, get get guys with the opportunity to move the ball and make plays when talent was not the deciding factor of, of why they're getting in. Um, 
I think that's something that you need to look at. I, I, I agree with you about the pistol of, I mean, James Krapia of the Oregonian tweeted out a, like a video of, you know, only took one play for Panay Sewell to do something ridiculous against the civil war. And it was a crazy play where, where Sewell, um, you know, took out, I think three Beaver defenders on the left side of the defense, but the play resulted in a negative play because the backside linebacker or defensive end crashed unblocked. And because the pistol has the running back seven, eight yards behind the line of scrimmage, he had enough time to catch up to Travis die and tackle him for a shoestring tackle for a gain of zero or, or a loss of one. Um, and it's stuff like that. We've seen that happen a ton of times. Um, and I think if you're not, if you in, Part of that comes with the defensive end. The backside end does not have to worry about the quarterback running the football, pulling it out and and running where he just vacated space. And I I think if you're going to run the pistol, you need to to look at it and say, are we going to run the quarterback? And if we're not going to run the quarterback, what changes can we make? I don't know what they are uh, because I'm not that smart at football uh, at at that level to tell you how Oregon's going to you know, keep the pistol and fix those those plays because that happen, that's happened time and time again, whether it's a tackle from shoestring from behind or you know how many times have we seen a third and one or a fourth and one get stuffed because you know Oregon's running backs are so far back behind the line of scrimmage and it takes them so long to get up to uh, the line of scrimmage and Oregon's offensive line blocks it well, but just more defenders come in and, and, and take – down the ball carrier before the first down. So I think you look at why did we, why was there some struggles offensively? And I understand injuries are, are part of football, but everyone has injuries and that shouldn't be an excuse for why the offense completely stalled out a couple times during the season for entire games. Uh, and also, you know, for key chunks of some other games. Yeah, so I think that's to me where you, you start, and and it'll be interesting to see what kind of changes are are made or if they make any changes this off season. But it feels like from an out, I, I don't want to say a total outsider's perspective, but somebody who's watched this team all season, that 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 seems to be a constant area of concern, at least for me. So, uh, fourth question from at Nightmare Green Eight: How has Cyrus not moved ahead of Verdell on the depth chart and a number of carries? And who on this staff do you see getting a better offer or somewhere else and leaving? Um, let's start with the first part there. It's a two-part question, but uh, I, I think Verdell is, still remains the best running back, you know, pound for pound on the team. I, I know that, you know, I posted a stat over the last five games. Travis Dyes actually outran Verdell by a pretty decent margin in terms of just yards per carry effectiveness. Um, Verdell has is, is just kind of, I think the injuries have impacted it too, but uh, I still think he's your best running back and gives you the best chance to be successful. Cyrus has had some moments. I know he's obviously a tremendous um, contributor in the red zone. But you watch him kind of between the 20s, and there are times where he's just not very effective. Um, And uh, I think you want to still find ways to incorporate him, but I still think C.J. Verdell. And, like, if if we're having a discussion of who do I think should carry the ball Darren Felix. Darren Felix is another name, too. But, like, I think Travis Dye, if I'm picking between, you know, those four guys, I think Dye is the one to me. Maybe Matt sounds like maybe Felix is somebody he wants to see more of too. But like Dye is the one I'm kind of going like he should be carrying the ball a little bit more. I mean, he's averaging about seven yards a carry over the last five games, um, and 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 he's had a lot of just big play potential. And that that could be a thing against Utah where 
if you can just maybe you don't you know open up a huge hole very often, but if you open up that hole once every seven to ten run plays, you want to have the guy you can hit it the hardest and get downfield the furthest because it's not you know running against Utah is never easy. So if if Dye is the guy that has the biggest um, big play potential in a game like this. I would find ways to incorporate him and use him a little bit more. What about you, you Matt? Well, you I've always, I've always that? felt like, I've always felt Die was underused, especially in the passing game. Um, he's got 16 catches for 159 yards and a touchdown. Um, I've always felt like he has been very valuable on checkdowns when it 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 seems very simplistic, but have everyone do their normal routes, and if no one's open, just dump it off to Die because it. it it feels like whenever Herbert has checked him down, he he usually gets six or seven yards every, every time. Um, I think he's very valuable too in the screen game. Uh, he scored on that thirty-eight uh, that that touchdown against Arizona. I think it was like thirty-six yards or something uh, in that football game. Um, but you're right about his running. I mean, you look at what he's done the last four weeks: twelve carries, seventy-five yards against USC. 14 for 71 against Arizona. ASU had 558. And I don't think they ran. We don't have to dive too much, but they didn't run the ball enough in that one. Uh, And then against Oregon State, 12 carries for 91 yards. And yeah, he's only got one game this year over 100, and that was against Montana on 17 carries. But Eric, you're right. I mean, 6.25 yards per carry against USC, five yards per carry against Arizona, almost 12 yards per carry against Arizona State. Seven and a half against Oregon State. Um, on the year, he's got 642 yards rushing. Um, I think what Verdell does that doesn't involve running the football is why he starts because he is by far the best back at protecting Justin Herbert as a last line of defense uh, when they're passing. He is the best running back in pass pro. That's Travis Dye's probably his biggest, I guess, weakness in his game is he's not. He's nearly, he's nowhere close, I think, uh, and as good as Verdell is in blocking and pass protection. As for Cyrus, like you, you kind of said it, like he, he kind of is who he is. And I look at what he does, and some of his, his carries are predicated off of, you know, goal line situations, but his average just simply isn't where it is for other guys on the team at running back. Verdell averages almost six yards a carry, dies at 6.3, and Cyrus is at at four yards per carry. And, and you can argue, well, that's because he gets so many carries inside the goal yard, you know, inside the goal line, and it's it's not a good it's not a good opportunity for for him to to get those carries or get that average up. But when you look at when he's a, about a three game stretch when he got a bulk of the of the workload, 13 carries against Colorado for 47 yards. He had three touchdowns but 3.6 yards per carry. Washington, 14 carries, 81 yards, 5.79 yards. That's obviously his best game of his career. And yes. then against Washington State the next week, 12 carries for 48 yards and a four-point yard average. I mean, he just doesn't he doesn't have the explosive capabilities, I think, that a Verdell or a Travis Dye have. And he's kind of, you know, he's, he's found his role, 76 carries on the year, which is... For him, a, a, a really good total because I think you you look at what he did last season and he only got 18 carries. And so his his usage is, is going significantly up. But I just don't know if if you're going to get nearly as much value as as you I would as you would get going with a with a die or a Verdell. All right, Matt, and I'll just ask you the second part here. 
Um, who on the staff do you see getting a better offer from somewhere else and leaving? Is there anybody that you're kind of, of, of the assistants, obviously, I don't think he's insinuating Mario Cristobal, but like of the assistants who are candidates maybe to, to get a better job or to take off? You know, I, I think Arroyo will get a look. Um, 100%, I think that happens. Whether he takes a job or not is going to be uh, up for debate. Um, I think Andy Avalos might get looked at. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if a Dante Williams or a Keith Hayward also get looked at. Um, you know, people are always going to want to you know look at this defense, and Hayward's been a hot name. Dante Williams is turning into a hot name. But I, I, I think it, it starts with we've already seen it happen once already. Prentice Gill, uh, an off-field coach for Oregon, got an on-field job with Arizona State. I think that's m- probably more likely after Arroyo of seeing someone elevated to a to a bigger job and better situation one of the off-field guys the analyst the ga someone's going to want to pluck you know some, some success that oregon's got and we'll get we'll get we'll take one of those guys yeah i think you look at the coordinators maybe first and foremost among, among guys that could take off i think avalos is i don't know if his his stock hasn't decreased but i i think the expectation of him maybe getting a head coaching job somewhere else um after one year at Oregon, I think that's kind of died down. Yeah, it feels maybe a year. It would, it would, sh- it would shock me more now than it did earlier in the year. I think that's fair. All right, let's take a quick break. Uh, you're listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audibles podcast, Mailbag Wednesday edition. Uh, you guys get to dictate where we go with the show. Uh, four questions in, four more to go. Eric, let's let's keep going. All right, a hoops question from at Altman Fever. What is the latest with Enfali Dante? Is that report accurate? What's a fair expectation? Um, and just to, before I hand it over to Matt on this, because he is the basketball guy, but there was a report that came out uh, while Oregon was playing uh, over in the battle for Atlantis that Dante had been cleared and, and would be joining the team. Matt, have you heard anything more on that and kind of, What's your knowledge on the situation? Yes. But they could not comment on it at that time and would probably not comment on it until they got back to Eugene uh, and there was a media availability session. Uh, since then, nothing has come out from Oregon on that. So it's been about four or five days now since that report came out. And I think it was worded, presented in a, a wrong fashion. Nothing has changed. And Fale Dante is eligible, yes, immediately to um, join the team. But he can't enroll. So he he's available to join the team at the earliest possible time that it's available to do that. And that's where I think the confusion came from because it was presented like, oh, he could fly to the Bahamas and start practicing with the team and and play uh, maybe in one of the the North Carolina game or maybe he plays this Saturday against Hawaii. Like, no, that's that's not the case. He's eligible to join the team at the earliest time that is allowable to happen. And that means he has to enroll into school. He has to uh, then get cleared again and then get cleared again. Uh, he can officially join the team. He has to go to a physical exam, go to compliance stuff at the UVO. He's got to move in. He's got to get geared up, all that stuff. Oh, and then he's, he's got to have to practice too. Um, all of that will happen next week. 
uh, he because Oregon right now is currently on on I think it's dead week right now. So they're preparing for finals. Next week is finals week, and then once Friday at five o'clock on I think the thirteenth. Uh, let me just pull up the calendar just real quick so I'm right. Yeah, Friday the thirteenth at technically I would think at five o'clock when the when the workday is over. Um, and Saturday and the day shifts over to Saturday the 14th, he would then be able to join the team because fall term is now over. Winter term is preparing to start. And just like a freshman who rolls uh, in June uh, and arrives on time and is ready to help, you know, join the football team ahead of fall camp or ahead of the fall term. Volley Dante will be able to join the team December 14th. So nothing has changed. That's everything has happened is what we reported it previously. It's just it was presented in a way that made it sound like he was going to be able to join the team right away. Now, Oregon plays on the 14th at Michigan, which could potentially be the number one team in the country. I have very little, very, very little confidence in saying Dana Altman's going to throw a guy out on the road the first day he joins the team against potentially the number one team in the country like there's gonna have to be some kind of an injury there's gonna have to be you know foul trouble or something uh it's just such a daunting task to throw a freshman into um i think there's a better chance he plays the next week when they play montana at home um as for an expectation i think if you get 15 minutes of good basketball out of him every game you're probably feeling pretty darn good. And anything else after that, uh, I think is, is gravy because he's missed so much time of, of the implementation and Oregon's not going to be able to afford to just all of a sudden, Hey, stop practice. Let's get and follow Dante caught up to speed real quick. Um, you know, it, it's going to be hard for and Dante to show up and maybe that maybe his talent, his athleticism kind of can overcome the learning curve until the end of the year. Uh, but it, 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 he's going to have to take a crash course and then slowly kind of be brought along to help this program. You know, and after having watched Oregon play Gonzaga, North Carolina in consecutive days, a, a player like Infali Dante would have been such a game changer for well, them. Without a doubt. You know, and, and you kind of wonder, you know, if, if things were different, he was with the team, Morgan might be undefeated still, but... Uh, certainly going to be a huge, huge help down the stretch. And I think Matt obviously is spot on in terms of like, don't expect him to arrive and then play against Michigan and be a 15 and 10 guy right away. I mean, maybe that happens, but that would be like in the absolute best, best case scenario. And it honestly feels kind of unfathomable considering that, yeah, he would have been on campus for like 24 hours or something like that before, <laughs> before they go to Ann Arbor. Um, sixth question from at Tosh Myers. Which incoming freshman will help the football team the most in 2020? Um, so, yeah, he's talking about guys in the 2020 recruiting class who would help the team the most in 2020. Uh, I picked one offensive guy and one defensive player. Um, defensively, uh, I have to say Noah Sewell. <laughs> and maybe that's too, that feels too easy almost. But I just look at it and go, um, Oregon's losing some guys at linebacker. Uh, they're losing. I don't think he's going to play the same position. Maybe he will. But they're also losing a couple guys on the defensive line, like a Drayton Carlberg or a Gus Cumberlander. Um, I just look at that linebacker position, though, and go like, okay, between Troy Dye, Bryson Young, and Lamar Winston, that's like three positions that are opening up. And with a player like Sewell, who's that talented and has that versatility, I just would be 
surprised if he's not at least in the competition to start the season for one of those spots. And maybe it's a thing like with Kayvon Thibodeau uh, and Mace Funa where it, it takes a little time to, to kind of earn those roles and, 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 and get that situation kind of set up for them. But uh, I think at some point in the season, Sewell's going to be extremely valuable. Um, and then offensively, uh, I, I think Johnny Wilson's a guy to, to keep an eye out for the uh, 6'6 wide receiver from Calabasas. Uh, Ducks are going to need some help there. You know, you lose a Juwan Johnson. That's a big body receiver. You replace him with Johnny Wilson, a freshman. Um, don't I wouldn't expect Johnny Wilson to outproduce Juwan Johnson, although Juwan Johnson's kind of had an up and down season where some some weeks he's a huge part of the offense, other weeks he's not. But um, to me, those are two guys with with Sewell and Wilson that that stand out. Matt, do you have a couple guys that you think are going to be really big players right away? He helps Oregon immediately on the defensive end. Uh, anywhere, really. It could be linebacker, it could be stud, it could be along the defensive line. Um, I think that's once so you nailed it there. Uh, I would also say, yeah, you know, Johnny Wilson is a guy that's certainly going to make, I think, a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of headway with this receiver group. Um, one other guy I would I would look at, though, is Avante Williams, um, safety out of D-Land, Florida. He's 56th nationally, the second best safety in the country. We, we've seen some guys show up and maybe outperform their expectation. And he's coming into a group where it's going to be very hard to see him. You know, it's very potentially Javon Holland, as we know, is back. Nick Pickett, Brady Breeze. I think it's safe to say both of those guys will be back. So at safety, both your top three guys, excuse me, all three of your top guys are going to be back. But it wouldn't surprise me if Avante Williams kind of forces him wet his way either onto special teams or onto the into the backfield in some capacity. And then I, I think I think Chris Hudson, uh, you want to go down mm-hmm. the list a little bit at receiver. Um, four-star receiver from St. John Bosco High School, 5'11", was originally committed to USC. Uh, I think he could be another guy that I don't know if, you know, I just, I just think he's got a chance to, to get onto the football field, whether that's as a returner, uh, whether it's in the slot, on the outside. Um, Oregon's going to have some, some room to develop some receivers. And I think, you know, just like Johnny Wilson, I think Chris Hudson might, might get in there as well. Um, and then, in, you know, we'll, we'll see what, who Oregon finishes with. But I think a guy like, if, if Oregon can somehow get Darnell Washington, who's a five-star tight end, or DJ Rogers, who's a four-star tight end, I think either one of those guys, if they came to Oregon, maybe wouldn't start. Uh, but I think they could they could ju- make a jump up the up the depth chart and make that top three position next year at that at that spot as well for tight end. Yeah, tight end is a spot that's going to be pretty much wide open. Um, uh, you know, obviously you'll have Spencer Webb and Patrick Herbert back, and Cam McCormick is kind of the big wild card of what he is. And I should even say Hunter Campmeyer. But yeah, I think if you get a talented freshman, especially one who's maybe extremely valuable as a blocker as well as a pass receiver because you kind of look at the guys I just listed only Camp Moyer, and again I don't even know what to say about McCormick because it's I just feel so bad for him but it's two consecutive seasons where he basically hasn't played you just don't know what you're getting back but I I think if you can find somebody that's maybe a little bit of a better blocker than a Spencer Webb or a Patrick Herbert uh, that that could set them up to play quite a bit um, right. next year uh, seventh question from at Mega Vault Games this is 
a lot of questions today about kind of potential coaching changes. This one follows suit with it, but is a little bit of a twist on it. So from at Mega Vault Games, if Arroyo takes a head coaching job at UNLV or New Mexico, et cetera, assuming he moves on before National Signing Day, how could that affect the recruiting class, if at all? What do you think, Matt? Um, I, I think it would hurt a little bit. Um, Arroyo's a really good recruiter. He's been able to to help the Ducks land a couple guys across the board on offense and on defense. Um, overall, though, as as long as Oregon doesn't see a, a huge shakeup from the assistant staff department, I think it would be something that Oregon could get over uh, and it wouldn't maybe impact too much. I mean, Oregon can simply just say, look, you know, our offense is so good and we're producing – you know, we're, we're producing results at, at, you know, where you're coming to play uh, that people want to take our coaches because they want to replicate it. And, you know, that's a pretty easy sell. Like, we're going to find another guy that's going to do a good job, but you're coming to a place that everyone wants to, to replicate, and you're going to be the guy that, that's playing the original. So I, I, I think it would sting, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't derail the class. Yeah, I uh, just pulled it up. The Pac-12 recruiter rankings, Aurora is ranked fourth. Um, among, among Pac-12 coaches, so he is one of the one of the better guys, certainly in, in this conference, um, in terms of a, a recruiter. But you're right; I think you know it, it, the, the where it potentially gets problematic is if he takes multiple guys from the staff with him, and then yes. you lose more than what it's not just one guy; it's seven guys or something. Yes. Seven's a crazy number, but like three guys, and, and suddenly then you lose multiple connections, and then it could spiral. But I agree in terms of like if it's just one guy. Um, I think you can kind of minimize that and at least find ways to mitigate that. And, and maybe a couple guys aren't comfortable signing on signing day and you have to kind of stay on them through February, but um, you, you'd find ways to work around it. And, and this staff is so good at, in general. It's not just a one man show and it's not just a Royal. Um, you look at the recruiter rankings um, again, Dante Williams is the conference's top recruiter. Uh, Ken Wilson is third again, Arroyo's fourth and Alex Mirabal is, is uh, eighth. So, um, that's that's three guys in the top ten in the conference or top eight in the conference, um, and, and I don't think you'd anticipate losing, or should I say four guys in the top eight? I don't think you'd anticipate losing many of those guys um, if Arroyo took off. So, uh, final question from at Chadwick two two seven: Cristobal is in the bottom half in regards to salary among Pac twelve coaches. Do you anticipate a restructuring of MC's contract at the end of the year? Um, I think that's an interesting question. I mean, if they go out and if they win the Pac twelve championship on friday and then they go win the rose bowl like you better find a way to make sure he's you know comfortable and happy and you want to keep him here as long as possible and i know sometimes it's dangerous to you know mo- you know mortgage you know the, the whole future on one coach after a couple of seasons but i think you have to be just so confident and uh with kind of what you've seen from this staff in general and i don't think this feels like a, a flash in the pan season this feels like something that can be sustainable and replicable. So yeah, I mean, you, you have to find a way to keep him happy. And I don't know what that looks like in terms of the figure or if, if he even needs something this season, but in general, if, if this season plays out the way it could like best case, like, yeah, you absolutely have to find a way to keep him around. Cause he's proven to me at least that and I think Matt would agree that he's kind of the guy, he's the right guy for this job and the, the, the direction of this program is headed in the right way. And a large part of that is just because of who's the head football coach. Yeah, like I, I think he's going to warrant some kind of a raise, and this is where Rob Mullins makes his money because there's going to be <clears throat> a value that you need to increase with Cristobal. I think that's obvious. 
Um, Crystal Ball is, is taking this program in a, a good direction. I think uh, that the, the program is going in the right way. Uh, but at the same time, you don't want – you need to remind yourself what this year was expected. Like this is what they were supposed to be doing. And so you don't want to overextend your hand because what's the market, right, for a Mario Cristobal right now? It is I mean, Arkansas. He's not really tied to the Arkansas job in the SEC. Ole Miss, he's not li- listed there. Uh, I think I think the SEC had another opening, too, um, in, in, in their conference, and he wasn't listed there. He's not listed in Florida State. I mean, I think really right now the only – major power five job that would potentially come calling would be that you would be concerned about would be Miami and yeah. Miami just hired Manny Diaz uh, this past off season and they're in year one. Now it would, you know, we, I didn't think Willie Taggart would get fired, you know, one and a half years into his, his reign uh, at Florida state, but you know, so crazier things could happen, but I don't just necessarily think, there's going to be this super hot market. And that's, I'm not trying to devalue crystal ball, but because there certainly is, he is a rising star, I think. But at the same time, you don't want to, right? I think you'd be competing against yourself. And so you don't want to put yourself in a situation where if it does go bad, like next year, what happens if all of a sudden Oregon, they lose all these seniors, a couple of juniors go pro and all of a sudden Oregon trots out again and they're four and eight next year. Like, and there's just, systematic failures across the board that you're really concerned about. And you just andied up Mario Cristobal to, to $5 million a year and he's got all the leverage. Like I'm not, I don't think that's going to happen, but what if it does, you know? So I just, I just think you, you can't overextend yourselves. And because what if the worst case scenario happens and you put yourself in a position now where you're drastically overpaying for a coach that there wasn't a ton of, demand for before the contract extension now i i i i think crystal ball is is the guy and i think there's the program is going in that right direction but that's where i said earlier that you know this is where rob mullins makes his money because he needs to give a fair raise to mario crystal ball but at the same time with the understanding of this year was expected you were supposed to compete for the conference championship you were supposed to win the conference uh, with the players that you have on hand. So in reality, he's kind of done what he was supposed to do. And I think he starts earning his contract next year when so many of this program's important players over the last three or four seasons have now graduated or have gone pro. And we'll see, you know, this program really in the eyes of what Crystal Ball has envisioned. That's where his contract, in my mind, really starts because. If, if they had the success, well, that's what was expected. And now we're going to start seeing what he's built, what kind of foundation they've got, where this program is going. So I would think he gets a contract extension. Um, I would think it's going to be a substantial raise from what he's currently making. But it would surprise me if they went really aggressive long term with high val- with high amounts of money because you don't want what happened with Mark Helfrich back in 2014 where he made the college football playoff and did what he was supposed to do. They locked him up. They bid it against themselves. And then the program started to, to so, show some signs of, of wear and tear. And then two years after the playoff, they had a really bad losing season. And it was clear the program was not going in that direction. And you had to pay a huge buyout that you 
yourself created because there was very little market for him. No, I think that that remains the cautionary tale is you don't want to give up a little bit too much before this is proven to be more than a couple of years. But like we both said, I, 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 I'm buying into what's going on and I think you've got to find a way to keep them, but make sure you kind of minimize the potential costs going forward. All right. I think that's, that's it for us, uh, for this show. Um, thank you for submitting your questions as always. Uh, I think we had a good, interesting show, no doubt about that. Um, we'll have another one later on this week. Uh, we're gonna have Dan Sorensen on from the Ute Zone to preview the Utah Oregon Pac-12 Championship game. We'll have our ultimate preview show as well, uh, and then we'll have a post-game show from Levi Stadium, Eric, where you and I will have a podcast where we could be talking about a, a Pac-12 Championship win where we know for certain Oregon's going to the Rose Bowl, or will we have a loss where we don't know where Oregon's going, maybe even the Rose Bowl regardless. So for Eric Scopel, myself, Matt Brame, thank you for listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos.